Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Digitally Uploaded Podcast, the companion podcast for digitallydownloaded.net. I am Matt, and I'm going to be the host of this here podcast this week because Alan is away. He's digitist. How cruel is that? But we do have two other people, and they're pretty cool. On, we've got Trent. Hello, Trent. Hello. And we've got Harvey. Hello, Harvard. Hello, hello. Thanks for saying we're pretty cool. Yeah, you're pretty cool. Only pretty. I, no, I didn't want to not... say anything. I, you know, I just wanted to slide. Just wanted to bask in the. Be, be bask a, be a, a bit more modest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're you're not super cool. You're just pretty cool. So yeah, it's still pretty cool. That's good enough. <laughs> what have you been playing, Harvard? What has been your week of the games? I'm still slowly making my way through Octopath Traveler, and I am not liking it as much as I thought I would. It's just it feels just very rote. Like, it's very standard. Well, that's a pity. I'm going to stick with it, but we'll see how it goes. How many of the... How how far into it are you? I finished all of the chapter twos. And okay. I know that, like, chapter three and chapter four, there's probably going to be subversions and stuff. So I'm going to stick with it. Yeah. Stick with it. It's pretty cool. I liked it. I liked it lots. But I haven't played it for ages. There's just a lot. It. There's a Should lot of stuff. Should do a replay. <laughs> I feel um, like I stopped playing once I got up to like the snow area, like the ice section. So that was the last person I had to do, and I had done everyone else up to that point. Is that because you wanted a snowball fight and didn't get one, Trent? No, I thought it was a bit weird. There was something weird about like the first two chapters in that area were okay, but then I don't know. I feel like the story just got a bit weird, boring. I don't know. Were you, were you doing it like each character at a time or were you doing it with all eight characters chapter one all eight characters chapter two i was doing it as it was giving me characters okay oh i don't remember how that works so so yeah. i'd have one character and then we're like you have to go here to get this character now and we're like yes that kind of thing okay anyway yeah. friends what have you been what have you been playing i have been playing what have i been playing uh the switch thing that uh the the Antarctic game and then I've also been playing uh Digimon Survive and what else? There's like something else I'm missing. But on the Switch mostly. The Antarctic game I think he's referring to is South of the S- South of the Circle. South of the Circle, which is a very nice little game. I enjoyed it a lot. It's uh very cinematic, very Euro cinematic in its style. Um, very narrative-driven thing. It's not very gameplays, but it's yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was. But transitions blow my mind. It's like you're, you're like just like walking towards something, and then all of a sudden, it's like it might be like a light pole or something in the di- distance, and all of a sudden, it's like you know you're at a train station instead, and like it's not it's called a of... it's called a <laughs> flashback, Trent. So yeah, but no, 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 no. it, tra- it transitions <laughs> no, between mean. them. Yeah, I love that technique. It's like a it's, a, it's like a jump cut or like an unexpected cut where you're walking down a hallway and suddenly boom, you're somewhere else. Yeah, like he goes into a room and he turns. It's like the like the base station thing, and he turns on the light, and then all of a sudden he's in the lecture hall kind of thing. Like yeah, that it's such an indie game uh, technique, yeah. but I love it every time. It's so good. It's it's just a seamless transition between for the people who are listening who maybe haven't played the game. Um, it is just a seamless kind of tradition uh, transition between the kind of now, which is you. Uh, being stuck uh, after your plane crashes in Antarctica. And then it goes to a flashback to your life before the life, the events leading up to your, your little expedition. And 
yeah, it just kind of seamlessly transitions. So you'll be walking through the snow and then suddenly you're uh, kind of a, a whole bunch of, uh, uh, there'll be like a, a storm and the wind will whip up a bunch of snow and it'll go, it'll, the whole screen will go white. And then when the screen clears, you've, uh, you've trans transitioned to the kind of the uh, flashback. So yeah, it is an interesting technique, but it's, it's very cinematic. It's, it's nothing that we haven't seen from a, a lot of Euro cinema. Example. It's like, oh yeah, the snow, it goes white. <laughs> No, everywhere else it's like cool light switches. You see the light switch, you see some other room, like stuff like that, like those sort of types of transitions. You're just like, you walk into the snow, snow, bam, white screen. That makes yes, it sound sad and depressing. <laughs> that's the easiest example for people who maybe haven't played the game, Trent. <laughs> no, spoilers. <laughs> uh, anyway, if you haven't played it before, check it out. It is a very neat little indie game. All right, so on that, we'll go to some music and then we'll come back and we'll talk about all the games that are releasing in the month to come. Okay, so there are a lot of games releasing in September. The release schedule is picking up, and 
if you are going to try and play the war, you're going to be losing a lot of sleep this month. We'll start with the PlayStation 5. So on September 2, which by the time this podcast comes out, you would have already got it, I guess. Uh, the Last of Us Part 1 comes out, uh, which is a ground-up remake of a game that you can already play on your PlayStation 5. I'm sure it's going to sell bucket loads because that is what people do with Sony games, but there you go. Um, also on September 2, much more interesting for me, Train Sim World 3 comes out. I really like the Train, Train Sim World series. This one is apparently focused on you driving your train through all kinds of major storms and other nasty weather events. So it should be should be challenging, I'm hoping. Um, something I don't really want to do in the real world, but in the video game world, it's nice and safe. So I am looking forward to that. On September 6th, we've got Disney Dreamlight Valley coming out, which is it's a what? It's um it's like a animal crossing thing, isn't it? I don't know. Is it? I don't know. Disney Animal Crossing? I'm sure there was something like that happening. There was already a Disney Animal Crossing out there, which I can't remember, the magical world or something. But I don't know what Dreamlight Valley is going to be different, but I think it is just a chance to hang out with Donald Duck, which is enough for me. I'll play it. I I like the kind of more traditional Disney characters and stuff. So, yeah, if they've done a decent job bringing them into that game, I will enjoy it. On September 6th, we've also got Circus Electrique coming out, which is, as the name suggests, a circus-themed game. It is an RPG. I believe it's kind of like um, Darkest Dungeon or whatever it is. Darkest Dungeon? Is that that kind it's of like really hard road like Permadeath, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One. So I think it's like that, but it's circus-themed and still creepy, which could be really cool. <laughs> that sounds good. Creepy circuses are great. Yeah, there's not enough circuit ga- circus games. Yeah. Um, on September 8, a white day, a labyrinth named School comes out on PlayStation 5. This game's already been available on PlayStation 4 and stuff for plenty long, but um, it is a classic Korean horror, uh, stalker horror game. It is good fun. I really enjoyed it. I don't know if there's going to be any additions made for the PS5 version. Probably not. But having it on the modern platforms will be nice anyway. On September 8, we've got Steel Rising coming out, which is the latest from Spiders, which is a French development studio that does a lot of the kind of Euro trash uh, genre RPGs. But in recent times, they've really been pushing up and, and doing some really interesting things that actually play nicely as well, which is unusual for Euro Trash. Their last game was Greedfall, which is an excellent game. And Steel Rising is a kind of alternative universe, uh, French Revolution, where you get to hang out with Marie Antoinette and um, various other people from the revolution. But there's also robots now. So it's gonna be a twist like green floor it could be really great it could be it could be really great uh let them eat cake and then the guillotine is like a, a robot thing which would be fun anyway i'm looking forward to it it has nice aesthetic on where we go on september 9 if you're into your basketballs nba comes out this year's an nba so get them monies ready because it's going to be asking you for a lot of microtransactions and I have no doubt that a lot of people will pay for it because that is what they do. Scrolling on, nothing comes out for a couple of days then or nothing interesting. On September 20, we've got Solstice, 
which I don't know much about other than I'm pretty sure this is going to be like an action RPG thing. It has a nice aesthetic or the cover is nice anyway. So yeah, I'll find out more about that one later on, I guess. Yeah, that title could mean anything. It could be anything. On September 22, the Diafield Chronicle came out. Now you would have been already able to play the demo that's available now. And I am very much looking forward to this because that demo was excellent. This is a kind of pausable real-time battle game where yeah, you, you control a small number of units around a battlefield, real-time strategy style, but you can pause the game at any point to give them commands and therefore it's a little bit more cerebral than the typical RTS. It has a really nice aesthetic. It is a much bigger production than I thought it would be. It has a kind of Fire Emblem Three Houses vibe going on it with uh, the way that you can explore a kind of hub area in between battles and it just seems like it's pitching a bit higher than I thought it would be so yeah I'm looking forward to that I thought it was going to be a triangle strategy situation that kind of really indie thing but this one is definitely a bigger production for Square Enix than I thought it would be Square Enix is just like pumping these out now like every month they've got something big coming out I know which is good and it's also bad for my time (laughs) Um, on September 22, we've got a game called Potion Permit coming out. Don't know anything about this whatsoever, other than I guess you get to make potions, which sounds like it could be an alchemy style game. You're committed means, to do them even? Yeah, it, it means it could be an Atelier situation, which would be great. Uh, non uh, Koei Tecmo Atelier. I'll be for that. Um, we got the kickballs coming out on September 22, September, sorry, September 27, FIFA 23 lands, which is great if you're into your football. I'm sure you'll be looking forward to that. And then Square Enix is back again on September 29 with Valkyrie Elysium, which I'm very much looking forward to as well. Uh, I, I don't know too much about this one. I have been, I have given myself a kind of blank on seeing trailers and screenshots and stuff. So I'll be going into that fresh, but just from the box art and stuff. And the fact that it is a Square Enix RPG, I am looking forward to giving that one a go as well. It's not a, it's a, is it a Valkyrie profile game? I don't know. I think so. Like I said, I've really given myself a complete kind of oh, blank okay. on it. Other than knowing the title of it, uh, I don't know anything about it because I'm looking forward to going into that one fresh. On September 30, we've got Let's Build a Zoo. I don't know if that's, is that a zoo keeper? Kind of game i don't know i don't know anything about this one either but um let's build a zoo sounds good to me and it's is not the, the adam sandler um, movie is this the pixel one that everyone accuses of being too similar to stardew oh that could that be might, wrong that the so. box art yeah. the box that suggests that might be the case so if that's the case then okay <laughs> stardew zoo sounds good to me even if it is a bit of a ripoff um, I'll, I'll still play that. I haven't been following the controversy. Maybe it's completely original. Who knows? Yeah. Okay. And then on September 30, I'm just saying this one because it features bunnies, but Bunny Park comes out. And I'm sure that'll be the game of the year for me. It doesn't say anything about manager. Own... Oh, no, no. This is the um, Neko Atsumi game where you just collect with bunnies. Rabbits. Yeah. Oh. With bunnies. And you so, get to play that on your PS5. And you can play it on your PS5. That will be my game of the year. Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> Collecting bunnies is is a good idea for a game. Moving over to PlayStation 4 then, if there's anything that wasn't already 
released. We're getting a PS5 release as well. Uh, we do have Made in Abyss coming out on September 2, which again will be out by the time this podcast is. So there you go. Um, that's a action RPG from Spike Chunsoft, which should be fine. On oh, scrolling through, we've got Disney Dreamlight Valley. We've got Transim World. They're also getting PS4 version, so you can play them on that. Also, Circus Electric is a PS4 version as well. NBA gets a PS4 version. They haven't moved on from that to make exclusives for the new generation yet. Trash Sailors comes out on September 16, which I don't know anything about, but that's a good title for a game, I guess. I think we're hitting the point with the PlayStation 4 that it's um, all, all the games are getting PS5 versions as well and or it's just shovelware at this stage. Yeah, it's taken two years to get to this point, but we're finally here. Yeah, it is. Like, oh, hang on. No, here's one. On September 27, The Legend of Heroes Trails from Zero comes out, which is, oh, that's great because if it wasn't enough RPGs on PS5, we've also got a new Legend of Heroes game which I'm yes. looking forward to a lot. Well, it's not new, is it? It's kind of a, it's an old one, but they've finally localized it into English. Yeah, so. but is it, a, is it the Heroes series or the Cold Yeah, Steel yeah, it's series? the Heroes series. The Heroes, the Heroes series. Oh. Yeah, so if you played, you know, um, Cold Steel, The Legend of Cold Steel, it's that series. But this one is of the, I mean, one. Trails in the Sky series, I mean. Yeah, I don't know which, where it fits into the chronology. Chronology. Nobody knows anymore. You've got to be a <laughs> if you're a fan of if you're a hardcore fan of the Legend of Heroes, then you're probably yelling at your podcast right now because I, I'm being I'm saying things that are stupid. But I don't know where it fits into the the overall um, series. I just know it is one of the older games that was released. It hadn't had I'm an not English convinced. version. Hadn't had an English version beforehand. I believe there was a fan translation and. Nipponichi actually worked with the fan translators to make this official localization. So um, I'm sure it's great because it seems to be one of those ones that the fans keep telling me is great every time I listen to them. <laughs> I don't, don't think wanna... anyone's you... ever finished all the Shells games. So you, I don't you, think you, I don't, think you you don't want to listen to a Legend of Heroes fan because they, <laughs> they're, a, they're an interesting group of people. But uh, yeah, I, I think it is one of the better ones in that series. So if you like Trails of Cold Steel, then keep that one on your radar. Um, oh, and here's another one that is a PS4 game, Pathfinder Wrath of the Righteous, which is the second in the Pathfinder series. They are basically the spiritual sequel to the Baldur's Gate games in a way that Baldur's Gate 3 itself was not. <laughs> uh, I'm a big fan of... Oh, I really enjoyed the first Pathfinder, and I'm really looking forward to this one. They're big. Look forward to a hundred hour odd game, but uh, it, it is that kind of classic top down isometric turn based combat, um, old school RPG experience. So, if you're into that, like I definitely am, then you'd want to check that out if you haven't already on PC. And that is it for PlayStation 4. So, just two more RPGs on top of everything else that was also getting a PS5 version. Everything on Switch is small. I only want Over, tiny games from now on. Over on only the small. Switch. Let's have a look, shall we? Um. Oh God, I'm scrolling and scrolling. It hasn't moved off September one yet. Still scrolling. So Made of Made in Abyss comes out on the Switch as well. Temtem comes out on September six, which is that's an RPG too, isn't it? Yeah, it's loosely a Pokemon-like game. 
where you collect little monsters and do battles and stuff. So it's been in the works for a long time now, and it is finally coming. So that'll be good if you're into your Pokemons. Uh, so I have not played it since the beta. <laughs> it's probably completely changed. <laughs> I would imagine so. Uh, Circus Electric comes out on the Switch as well, probably the platform for it, to be honest. White Day also comes out on Switch. Again, the platform for it, to be honest. Splatoon 3 comes out on September 9, which I know a lot of people are going to be looking forward to. Um, a lot of people are going to be lo looking forward to Splatoon 3. The... The, the I guess the hype is is very strong with it. Uh, I think people are liking what Nintendo has been talking about. I, I don't think it's going to be a massive step up from the previous one, but it'll be iterative in a way that people enjoy, and that's good. So yeah, that I mean, going from Splatoon one to two, it wasn't that much difference anyway, right? Well, they added a whole bunch of stuff in Splatoon two, like a whole bunch of single player stuff and the horde mode or kind of co op thing as well, wasn't it? Yeah, but Probably like overall looks... experience. Yeah, well, there's only so much you can do with it, I guess. Stuff. Yeah, like yeah. Uh, to introduce the um, the octolings, and then you had like the um, the bit where you collected the the like you did it like a you worked, and then you collected fish, and then it also had like the more emphasis on the uh, single player as well. Like that was more of a fleshed out actual hmm. like thing. So free is pretty much more of the same. And then all of those things where they were time-based, like it's like, oh, you can't play this mode unless it's like between two and three on the weekend sort of thing. Like that's opened up. Um, that you can I remember they did that. The yeah. So they've done stuff like that. Uh, and a lot of it's basically quality of life stuff. But we'll, I guess we'll see how it goes as a game. I'm sure is it'll be this, fine. It's it... kind of major property for Nintendo now. They're not going to let it slip. So... Yeah, it'll, it'll be good. Call of Duty fan films is that I heard, I heard all of that, and my first thought was, I'm not gonna play any of that. I'm just gonna play the multiplayer. Is that how a Call of Duty fan feels? Yeah, probably. whenever the new game gets announced. Yeah, probably. it's so weird. Um, on so moving on on September 15, we've got Absolute Tactics: Daughters of Mercy coming out, and as anybody knows, if you want people to pay attention to your game, you put Absolute in front of it. Um, it'll be a tactical game, I'm sure, an absolute tactical game. If they have a single mini game in it, everyone will be like, "No." I don't lives. know why anybody would release an RPG in September, but hey, that's you know <laughs> an indie RPG. That's not what I'd be doing, but they're going for it. Good luck to them. On September fifteen, we've got Fault STP. I don't even want to try and pronounce this. Light Gravity. L i g h t k r a v t e. Fault. I think that's a visual novel. I think I'm sad. Alan isn't here to make fun of. <laughs> I, I think <laughs> stupid name. It is, uh, but I think that is a, a visual novel. I think the Fault series is pretty well regarded as far as visual novels go. So that being on Switch will be a good thing. On September 15, Dungeons Three Nintendo Switch comes out. Edition comes out. I really enjoyed Dungeons Three back on the PS2, a uh, PS4. Sorry, not PS2, on the PS4. So that's. A spiritual successor, I guess, to the old Dungeon Keeper games where you play as the bad guy, you've got to make traps that kill the heroes that are invading your lair. And it's just, it's delightfully fun, perverse a simulation thing. So there you go. On September 19, The Return to Monkey Island comes out, which I think a lot of people are looking forward to. I don't know. I thought that, is that coming out on the PlayStation? Oh, probably not because it's a Xbox thing, isn't it? 
Xbox and new? Switch, I believe. Is it well, is it a bringing back the old games or is it like a brand new thing? This is bringing back Monkey Island. This is the new Monkey Island game. Oh, I know, but is it like a brand new Monkey Island game or is it bringing back the old Monkey Island games, you know? What's a brand new a one? Re- a remake or a remaster or whatever. That trailer was like it's a, it's a new one. Oh. Huh. And it's not a my Xbox thing because it's uh, Devolver Digital. I don't know why I didn't see it on the PS4. On five lists. Anyway, it's coming down Switch on September 19th. So point and click classic. It is back and that is good. On September 20, we've got two more visual novels to look forward to. Amnesia Memories and Amnesia Later X Crowd. Oh, I reviewed they... this back in the day. That's a that's a a, a fun one with Yes, um, Amnesia is excellent. Really, really high quality. On the fun. Uh, <laughs> some of the roots are a little bit um edgy, but it's an also awesome game. So I'm guessing that's par for the course, isn't it? Yeah, they always are. They always have those kind of edgy ones. Uh and these, these, yeah, both of these games do have that, but they're very high quality, like super, super high quality art and stuff. They were around since the PSP, PS Vita. Yeah, PlayStation Vita yeah, was the original release. So they're only... They're a real being, classic of the genre. Yeah, they're only being ported to Switch. You probably played them before if you're into your visual novels, but you'll be able to play them on Switch now as well, which is, which is good. It's always good to have them on more platforms. On September 22, Diafield Chronicle comes out on Switch as well. Probably the right platform for it. Um, on the same day, another visual novel comes out, another automated one. Pio Fiore Episodio 1926, which is... The Mafia one? Yeah. This is the sequel to the one that was... Uh, it, it's based on the Italian Mafia from the 1920s, as in 1926. And the previous Pio Fiore one was... Well, you know how you said Amnesia got a little bit edgy? <laughs> this one gets very edgy. It very is, edgy, okay. Yeah, this is a very adult-themed um, automatic game. That doesn't mean nudity or anything like that. It's just particularly uh, adult in its themes. And I'm sure this sequel will be much the same. Excellent game, very high quality, but you do need a strong stomach for it if you're going to play it. Um. On September 23, we've got a new Taiko game coming out, and I did not know about this, but that's pretty oh. cool. Taiko no Tatsujin Rhythm Festival comes out on Switch, which will mean more drumming on your Switch. It has 76 songs, which is a pretty good number. And, yeah, it's great. Everybody loves Taiko the drum. It Everybody. takes forever to get all the songs. <laughs> I was playing the Xbox One, I'm like... Half of these are crap songs. I want good songs. And then you go to the store thing and you have to buy your points from like the drum game. And none of the store, the store is just one song at a time. And it's like, nah. Did we not play the same game? I thought the one on Switch had everything already unlocked. It does. I had it on the Xbox. I played it on the Xbox. I didn't have it on Switch. That's my, that's my problem, isn't it? No, but I don't know why that would be so different to, to make the Xbox players suffer through that. But there was only like what 60 songs or something and then like any of the additional songs you go to the store thing and then you have the points and then you pay to unlock those things i have no idea what you're talking about yeah neither i didn't see that at all (laughs) i don't know five out Uh, of zero um five out of zero (laughs) 
So Legend of Heroes also coming out on Switch, which is great on September 27. Pathfinder is coming out on Switch. I did not know that. I'll play it on that for sure. That's coming out on September 29 as well. And I think we're getting close to the end here. Bullet Soul comes out on September 29. Don't know what that is. It could be a fighting game. Could be a shmup. Could be anything with could Japanese games like. and their names. Um, could be an RPG for all I know. But there you go. That's coming out on September 29. I'm sure somebody's a Bullet Soul fan out there and will yell at me. And I think that's it. That is it. That is it for the Switch as well. So that's oh, a lot like of games. 12 RPGs. Yeah, that's a lot of games. Um, interestingly enough, except for the except for the Last of Us, it's not much Western stuff, is it? Like the, yeah, there's some Western RPGs, say... but it's more kind of the niche, like the path of the Pathfinders. It's not the really big blockbuster stuff yet. I the discounted the Last of Us because I didn't count that as a real game. So yeah. when we got to Switch, <laughs> I thought that Splatoon Three is the first shooter we're talking about, and I thought that's really weird. You know, the Last of Us is just a walking simulator anyway. And I mean, Splatoon is a it's a Japanese game anyway. It's yeah, it's a very, a very, very Japanese, Japanese shooter. A shooter. So there, there just isn't much blockbuster stuff. If if you're into your Japanese games or you're into your more niche Western titles, then great. I mean, Steel Series is going to be really good. I think. Maybe it's also just nobody wants to drop their game in the two K FIFA month. Yeah, it is possible that the the sport balls games is kind of dominating the western release cycle this time of year now so the shooters and whatever come a little bit later on in october november so they're coming there's going to be some big blockbuster stuff released this year but just not yet so mm. september's good for people like us but not so much i guess for people who like the call <laughs> of duties and whatever but then i don't think those people are really listening on this podcast so what are you looking forward to trent if you had to pick one game from that huge pile there which one would you play I'll probably play uh, Splatoon 3. I, I, I feel like I'm all Team Splatoon. I got back into Splatoon 2 recently, and everyone mine just sucks at playing the game. So I'm hoping <laughs> that Splatoon... No, everyone has like high scores, and they just have no strategy, and they don't help you out. And it's like, what? That's every online game, game Trent. Yeah, That's but when the game first came out... Everyone was like, yes, we are a team. You go over there. I'm going up the middle. You're going over there. The other guy can do whatever. Maybe like run around the base a bit. And we're just going to like ink as much as possible initially. And then we're going to like destroy everyone else. Like, Trent, you're probably the oldest person just... in any match. So <laughs> probably. But everyone <laughs> that's probably why. <laughs> everyone just focused straight on like trying to kill everyone. And no one inks anything properly. And it's like, well, we're not winning. Yeah, I, I I was just really surprised you expected cooperation from your teammates in a cooperative team online game. You don't get the, that. That's not what we do. The here. game used to be like this. It used to be fun. It used to be about community. It used to be great. Uh, well, it's an online game, so I'm sure it devolved like every other online game did. Well, it, I can it, play Splatoon free before it devolves, and I'll be happy. What about you, Harvard? What are you going to be playing if you had to pick one? I'm like one? scrolling through all these JRPGs and I'm just going to say I'm going to pick one. Because I, I have a folder on my Switch called JRPGs I have not touched. And it's got like 
20 <laughs> games in it at this point because they always go on sale and i'm always like oh i'll play that one day and it's only 10 bucks and i never play it and you never so play it yeah I'm, i think i'm gonna look into trails from zero because the zero and the title suggest to me that maybe it's a good entry point for the series i've always wanted to get into trails but it's like trails are called still three i'm not gonna understand that right and i can't get the first games on switch so we'll see i'll, I'll probably get that one fair enough yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. Um, I, I was a big fan of the Trails of Cold Steel series, but admittedly, I haven't gone too deep into the rest of it. Uh, I, yeah, it, it can be quite confusing, I guess, that series. If you, it's a real commitment. Yeah, and if you step into it later on, as I did, like Cold Steel was my first of that series. If you, if you do step into it later, then it can be quite difficult to pick up the older stuff. But when it's presented to me like that, that's just kind of sitting there and released as a new game, then I can check it out, I guess, and it should be good. Uh, for me, I'm looking forward to Steel Rising, definitely. I'm a big fan of spiders. I really enjoyed the Technomancer, despite its kind of faults the game. The The concept of it was really good, and I thought the narrative was done pretty well, and it was, it was good. And then Greedfall really did push up to close to kind of... I don't want to say AAA because when it gets to AAA, it gets dumb, but um, it, it was really pushing up to that kind of top tier of, of yeah, RPG. Good AI game. RPG. Yeah, yeah. It's like polished, it was really... but still interesting. Yeah, exactly. So it had a, it, it was kind of a very anti colonial game in terms of its tone and the way it was presented. It had a really interesting world that was consistently surprising and being a smaller scale game just allowed the developers to to be a bit more experimental with it i'm hoping having done the rising... review i was like all the way through i'm like this is a matt game matt needs to play this game <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and i'm glad i did uh, i've actually played it through a couple of times i bought the ps5 upgrade for it as well and played it through again on ps5 it's not often i find the time to play a game twice so that's that's a pretty good indication usually for me if i feel like i want to play it at least two times that I really enjoyed it. So I'm hoping Steel, uh, Steel, I keep saying I want to say Steel Series, but that's a company that makes keyboards and stuff. Uh, I, I'm really hoping that Steel Rising is of the similar quality. The, the, um, the trailers and stuff have been really impressive. The promo art has been really interesting. Uh, I, when you start doing alternative histories, it could go either way. I mean, throwing robots into the French Revolution could, could go either way. But I, I have faith. I mean, I'm going to be interested to see if Marquis de Sade shows up because he was operating around those days. <laughs> and uh, Marquis de Sade plus robots could be a very fascinating cutscene indeed. So, yeah, that's my game for this one.
So something interesting happening in the gaming space lately is that we're looking at games in a different way. So we don't think of games as being one fixed thing anymore. Instead, they're always these ever-changing, constantly updating, always patching concepts, which changes our relationship with the game. Because if we look at something like, I can't believe I'm using this example, Fortnite, every season, the map changes, the design changes, they add content, they remove content. If you're someone who played Fortnite when it first came out and you want to go back and enjoy that, you can't. It doesn't exist anymore. Instead, you have something that's the same name by the same developers with some superficial similarities, but it's just a completely new experience. And thinking about how games are going nowadays, more developers are trying to do the same thing. They're trying to keep changing an existing game so that you keep playing it rather than making something that will stand the test of time on its own. So There's with that in mind... really, really good example of that is No Man's Sky. Yeah, definitely. No definitely. Man's Sky is a... Like, it's coming out on Switch soon, right? Um, I think it's early October it's coming out on Switch. And I haven't played No Man's Sky in a very long time. Um, but when I did last play it, I did not enjoy it anymore. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm kind of one of the, the relatively few people that really enjoyed what they did with the original No Man's <laughs> Sky because a lot of the criticisms people had of that game were that it felt, you know, empty and it was, um, I mean, it was largely it that, it, that it was empty. It had no, no content. Yeah, yeah, and it it felt lonely and, and so on and so forth. It didn't have multiplayer, all those kinds of things. But for me, that was really a strong thematic core for the game that you're out in space, you are alone, it is boring in a way or in a, you know, in many ways, uh, basic survival is kind of the only objective. And there's a kind of, there, there was a, there was a beauty about that, that I really appreciated. And I wrote a, <laughs> a I don't want to toot my own horn, but I did write a, a pretty good review about the qualities of the original No Man's Sky. Within a couple of updates, all of those qualities are gone and it was replaced by something that people enjoyed. A lot of other people enjoyed, sure, but I didn't anymore. So I'm kind of looking forward to this Switch release to see how much further it has even, you know, it has continued to go and how little I'm probably going to enjoy it on those base on that basis. But that is your kind of your point that yeah, yeah. Because they keep updating this game, that original No Man's Sky that I loved, I can never play it again. It's gone. Yeah, yeah. You can't you can't choose to play an older version of No Man's Sky. What I liked about the game is just no longer there. And you know, we were talking about um, we constantly talk about preservation of games and uh, all of that kind of stuff. For me, that's kind of the the issue here is that um, we're not preserving games; we're fixing them. <laughs> um, but often in fixing them, we're we're fundamentally changing them. Yeah, and even in the inverse, if the original release of the game was messy and buggy and actually kind of bad, and then they patch it up to make it good, there will still be some people who want the kind of bad version, right? Like the great example of that is World of Warcraft, where the classic server is super popular, even though I think most people would say the classic experience is just a worse game. Yeah, yeah. Um, another example of that, I guess, is uh, Deadly Premonition 2, I think they fixed the frame, frame rate. <laughs> and 
and in doing so <laughs> the frame rate is part of the aesthetic experience well that that was that was certainly the case for me i thought that the 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 dodgy frame rate was actually um secretly something that you know uh sweary did on purpose uh actually because... i remember you saying this yeah because you had this argument about how sometimes the frame rate is perfect when it needs to be and sometimes it lags when it's meant to be yeah i thought it was like a design choice uh maybe not but he fixed it anyway uh, because he got enough blowback from players about it and uh again it's kind of it's not the same experience anymore yeah I, that I, frame rate i really think it felt like you were drunk at times like i yeah it it felt interesting even though it wasn't like, I, I don't know if I 100% agree with you that was on purpose, but, like, I, you know, it definitely had its uh, merits there. Yeah. The problem yeah. we're running into is that we're a bunch of literary nerds with, who can find meaning out of anything, right? We can point at any <laughs> specific design choice in a game and hypothesize what meaning or intention was behind it. Even if the developer themselves might not have had that intention, we can still make it meaningful. But suddenly that power is taken away from us when that changes from under our feet, right? If the game can constantly change, what can we continue to talk about? We can only criticize something that won't even exist in the future. Well, that's kind of, that. that is an interesting thing from, I guess, critical theory about video games and how, how we think about them and how we write about them and how we talk about them, that um, we can't assume that what we're seeing is going to be permanent. and. You know, in some cases, that that's not an issue. Like, for example, I don't tend to write about game kind of crashing bugs uh, in games. I don't tend to let that factor into my reviews because, unless I've got a good reason to think the developers aren't going to fix it, because I generally yeah, yeah. assume that the, the developers are going to fix hash. it. So there's no point talking about that in the context of a review that's going to be there in two years when the issue is not going to be there anymore but it becomes a lot more sticky when i could be talking about anything to do with the game and it could change a classic example of that and for me it kind of the catalyst moments where a lot of this stuff started to happen was the ending for mass effect 3. people who wrote about the original ending for mass effect 3 have written about something that no longer exists. Any version of Mass Effect 3 is now the fixed version, which changes the fundamentals about how that game ends. So if we can't talk about basic things like plot <laughs> in games and assume that there's some kind of permanency about it, how do we talk about anything to do with the game? Unless it's a kind of a living conversation about that game ourselves, which as a critic makes things pretty difficult because I need to move on to the next game after I review one. I can't sit there and keep playing No Man's Sky every single day, every single update, and then writing a new review about it because there's just too many other games to play. Yeah, there's a few different approaches that I've seen work. The first, and I keep talking about Fortnite because that's the one that everyone's writing about, is just to write about the ever-shifting nature of the game and to consider that the that giving and taking away of components is just part of that aesthetic experience in the same way that the plot and graphics could be. So when people write about Fortnite, they don't write about specific elements. They write about the facts that these elements are always in flux. 
all the alternative is to just do an ongoing column, like with League of Legends co uh, coverage. It's just every week you write a new piece and you keep, keep, keep staying on top of all the changes and you just devote your life to it. Yeah, th those are approaches, I guess, but I don't think they lead to necessarily good criticism. And I don't mean that in a way that's kind of, you know, um, being critical of the, the writers. I don't read this stuff, so I can't comment on their, their abilities as writers. I'm sure they're doing a great job for the community and whoever's playing these games. But for me, criticism itself has value as a permanent statement of record about something. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the, the two examples I've given are not lasting. They're, they're very temporal in the same sense that the games are talking about are always temporal. So well, I definitely I, I, agree. I would I'm... say that criticism is irrelevant now because games uh, and how games are marketed, especially during the review stage and what are embargoes, you're not talking about, you know, plot lines at various points anymore. Like, they're either embargoed or they're like not what the intention of the you know review from the publisher's point should be about you know they are like oh you should be focusing on x y and z kind of thing and that then becomes the narrative and if you have a game which is constantly changing like fortnite then you're constantly, even if you're not making another review, you're going to be constantly talking about these games. You're going to be constantly putting in either, you know, new articles or you're going to be talking about it on a podcast. So the game is always in the narrative of the gaming space. So people are always saying, oh, have you heard about the new Fortnite update? So people are like, no, I haven't. And then so they're going out and they're going to play it. So that's all about trying to grab at people's attention rather than not necessarily having any critical thinking about the actual game. It's more about how long can we keep this game in the mind space of the consumers? Yeah. And that's kind of, that's kind of the, the point um, that if, if video games are meant to be an art form and I find myself increasingly saying that with the if, because the direction this industry is going, I, I'm really saying the question, the future of it as a, as a, as an art form. There was a point where it looked like it was going to be one of the great art forms, but I question that these days. But if video games are an art form, then having criticism, not reviews, criticism, having critical writing about video games is pretty important because it is through the critical writing that we have the discussions about the art form which is important in the development of the art form. And that has applied to every other art form out there, whether it's people writing, you know, lengthy books about Shakespeare or people writing essays about, you know, the work of Degas or Van Gogh or whoever else, um, or the early writings are, are about cinema and how the, the directors actually did a lot of working criticism that's, um, resulted in us having concepts like mise-en-scene and uh, montages and things like that. The work of Eisenstein, uh, Eisenstein yeah, Eisenstein, the work of Eisenstein and, and various other kind of film theorists in the early days, that contribution via criticism was how we ended up with the art form turning into what it is now. We don't have that with games. And I don't think yeah, we're going yeah. to get that because games are in this constant state of flux where there is nothing permanent to talk about with any video game anymore. And 
without having a permanency, then anything we write about the video game is itself going to be very limited. I think that there is still a space in the market for permanent experiences, but I think the movement is definitely the most popular and the most played video games. And so by con- by consequence, in 10 years, the most talked about video games mm. are those ones that have lasted, that are constantly changing. And it, it's really weird for the art form because it means that historically with gaming, the way we treat it is it's as if all of the historical paintings of the previous style have been locked away into a vault that's super hard to access, but they exist, right? And now with the constant patching and the live service experiences, it's as if we are setting fire to those old ones. I could go on YouTube and watch uh, League of Legends, which I used to really enjoy, and realize that I can never, ever play that game anymore. It's it, There's no possible way of accessing it, not just because it's locked away, but because it's been destroyed. So, yeah, where are we? This is an existential threat for digitally downloaded. And perhaps, and perhaps there will be some kind of two-speed games industry that will merge out of it. Perhaps we'll have the entertainment esports version or space of, of video games where you have the likes of Fortnite and for those spaces the 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 body of work is really around temporary um design for consumption itself uh coverage and then perhaps there will be that second speed um the the indie the art house however you want to term it side of the games industry where we do have these conversations and perhaps that's not going to be very popular. Um, oh, that's my thought too, it's... is that gaming has succeeded because these AAA space makes so much money that having the indies on the same store is already a benefit. Whereas what, if we have this split, then yeah, good luck to anyone making art. It's going to be the same as any other thing. Well, it, it does, it does raise the question about whether that space needs its own platforms. Um, and we do have that in a in a sense that we've got itch, for example, and itch is an excellent platform that is specifically tailored only to the Indian the art house space. You can't really put a AAA game on itch, uh, and nobody does because they deliberately restrict what you can put on that platform via you can I think the the maximum. Size, size, yeah. yeah, there's a maximum file size of like a gigabyte. Uh, you can get permission to do something larger, but for that reason, you're not going to have an EA throw their 50 gigabyte FIFA on itch, even though they know it would sell because it's the only blockbuster thing on there. They just, it, it's just not practical for them. They're not going to do it. Itch isn't going to allow it. So itch has become this platform for indie stuff. And perhaps the question then is, do we need devices that are kind of designed around the itch experience or the indie experience? And we have that as well because we've got Playdate now. Playdate's a really good, potentially pioneering example of where indie art house game devices could go. Is and Playdate the crank console? Yeah, yeah, it's the crank console. Yeah. And it's proving I to be really popular. A, it's like it's that this to me darling. is a whole separate ephemeral concept in that no one that's going to go it's not going to have a huge market share the people who enjoy it will like it and none of those games are going to appear anywhere again because who's going to make another console for crank well that's that's kind of the point that i'm getting at here perhaps we need to be 
we we need to firstly accept that the indie space is never going to be of the size of the blockbuster space. But as long as it's sustainable, perhaps that's okay, if that makes sense. If the play date makes enough money that the company stays open and can continue to support the play date and perhaps make a play date too somewhere down the down the track. If they do that, then perhaps that's enough. Um and the Playdate's proving to be very popular with that space. You go on itch and there's new Playdate games being released on it constantly because they've been um it's a natural fit for it. You're never going to see Playdate games released on Steam or whatever. But uh I, I just think that perhaps this is okay and perhaps we need to as a community we need to be okay with the idea that the indie space and the blockbuster space have moved in different directions and don't necessarily need to cross over anymore hmm. yeah That's because then if thought. we do that then we can talk we, we can engage with the indie space as a separate thing to video games and we kind of had that discussion, I guess, um, a couple of years ago, there was that, there, there were endless conversations about whether visual novels were video games, right? Um, that's kind of died off because nobody really gives a crap anymore. But Yeah, definitive yes, no. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But people had to become comfortable with the idea that visual, visual novels existed and that they had an audience. And that audience wasn't as big as the Fortnite audience, but that was okay. And now we treat them as this separate thing, right? Walking simulators are another example. We have these kinds of genres which have always sat a little bit outside of where people have the perception of what video games are. And initially there isn't a very high level of comfort with them, but as the general audience becomes the players of those games uh, become comfortable with their status and the people who don't play those games kind of stop paying attention to them. Um, they, they just become normalized. And I think that's yeah. where we need to get with the indie space that we need to stop trying to compare the indie games to the blockbusters. We need to stop trying to imagine that these games can grow to become blockbusters and we should instead kind of engage with them in on their own terms in all of this where do you see the mid-tier space then oh that's not going to exist it's not going to exist no it's not going to exist for a couple of reasons firstly the developers making those games are going to be acquired by big companies like that is just going to happen embracing mm. group's going to buy 90 percent of them the rest will go <laughs> to microsoft or sony or uh amazon or They'll all be bought. <laughs> they those companies are fundamentally up for sale because those companies are they're you know 40, 50 people. They're they were you know made by people who were generally pretty creative and wanted to do something of their own. They wanted independence. They set out, they made a company, and that company has hit a point where it's fairly large and it wants to be it becomes a target to be acquired. But at the same time, the people creating those companies are still business people. They want to make money. They're offered a chance to get out of the company with a big payday and you know, millions of dollars. They're going to take it. Of course, they're going to. So those companies just cease to exist in the sense that they just become absorbed into these really massive corporations. And when they become absorbed by them, the fundamental culture around those companies change and the games that they produce will change. 
they might be the same kind of size and scale, but the idea of them being a triple A, uh, sorry, a double A game kind of goes with it because they're not really anymore. They're, they're backed by massive corporations. So that independent space that you're talking about uh, with mid tier games, I don't see there being a future for that. It'll be the big blockbusters, which will be five or six companies that are basically running everything and producing everything and consuming 90% of people's time and money. And then there'll be the tiny indie space where you've got developers of maybe 10 people, never, never going to be enough to be acquired. <laughs> Certainly not of interest of the, to the big companies, but with any luck, they find a sustainable uh, audience. It's like a horrifying microcosm of our economy. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty much the same everywhere, right? It's, um, the film industry is the same. There's nobody creating mid-tier films anymore. In fact, that's been kind of a, that's been something that film writers seem to be finally catching up to and, and being quite frightened about. They've they've realized finally that Disney's absorbing all the money in the film industry, and what's mm-hmm. left is either the micro productions and publishers or Disney. Um, so it, it's the same. I'm pretty sure it's the same with literature as well and music. Yeah, I, I know music all is those, definitely the same. Big yeah, labels all, versus indie guys. Yeah, all, all all of it's the same. The the protections. It's it's really kind of the government protections over all this stuff. The protections that stop monopolies forming or fundamental monopolies or duopolies have, have kind of disappeared. So of course the big sharks are out there eating all the fish in the pond and um the only Just people in, who are left are like too small to be worth eating. Yeah, exactly. Too too small to to even be a snack to these guys. So that's just the end game for capitalism, <laughs> and it sucks. But like I said, my my great hope is that it's that indie space finds a way of being sustainable. It's like a motto for our website. It's like it sucks. Now go play some indie games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. The good thing about uh, games, I guess, is for now at least the the Japanese industry has a slightly different speed about it and is still large enough to produce interesting games. Um, mm. At the moment, it's too hard for these companies to acquire Japanese companies. So you, we haven't noticed too many big acquisitions of the Japanese guys because, for example, the one that people keep talking about, um, they want somebody to buy Konami because they have in their head that if somebody buys Konami, all of a sudden we'll get 20 Silent Hill games every year. <laughs> no um, one at Konami makes games anymore. But if you were to buy Konami, <laughs> you, you, you end up with a lot of stuff that doesn't really fit. Um, yeah, you end, you up, end with, up with like Pachinko health, machines and Yu-Gi-Oh. Well, health clubs is the big one. Like Konami, a lot of money, Konami's money comes from gyms <laughs> in Japan. And uh, I... I, I actually splitting the company up from that point becomes very difficult as well. So Mm. if Microsoft was to be interested in buying a Japanese company, they buy a lot of stuff. They spend a lot of money on stuff that they don't want or need. doesn't really fit their strategic vision. So that's why they don't. Um, It's the same with pretty much all of those companies. If you were to buy uh, uh, Sega, for example, that's the other one. People are always like, yeah, yeah, Microsoft's going to buy Sega because then we'll have Yakuza on Game Pass, even though it's already there. Um, but if you buy Sega, you get a toys business, which you're not going to necessarily want. 
I mean, Microsoft's not going to want to have to continue to produce Hatsune Miku figures into perpetuity because that's what Sega does. A big part of its business is those figures and the UFO catches in arcades and stuff. All of this stuff just doesn't make sense to spend money on for a Microsoft. So they don't. Mm -hmm. So that's what's protecting the Japanese industry at the moment. This is like uh, very unconventional capitalism. It's just a different way. Like Japanese companies, and it's not just in the video game industry, Japanese companies traditionally have a they lot a of, of stuff, right? Yeah, they have a lot of different divisions. Like Sony, for example, of course, we all talk about PlayStation, but Sony has everything from camera business to TV business. They used to have a laptop business. Um, they've got a lot of different businesses. Uh, I think they even have a chemicals business. So they just, the way that Japanese companies are organized is you grow by finding new product segments to enter into. Whereas in America or the West, you grow by vertical. You grow by yeah, you getting make one thing bigger. Yeah. You grow by yeah doing more and more and more of the stuff that you're already doing um, and dominating that kind of product segment. So it, it kind of worked out nicely for the Japanese industry in the sense that it does protect them a bit. It's a very inefficient way of doing business, which means that the Japanese industry or Japanese companies do struggle a bit with competing globally, but it does protect them a little bit from overseas acquisition. Mm. And we, I guess we'll also see a lot of development coming from other spaces as well. Once uh, Europe and America turns into these big companies, we'll see more games out of Australia and East Asia and Latin America and all those places as well. I'm really looking forward to seeing what China does. Uh, I mean, China's obviously got very big companies as well. <laughs> Tencent. China's got Tencent, yeah. yeah. It's just like a whole different which is, beast. <laughs> which is just uh, a, a mammoth company. But also, we're, we're just starting to see now that Chinese developers do some uh, really interesting things with very small scale. Uh, is, is Sword and Fairy affiliated with Tencent in any way? No, and that's a Taiwanese company, so we should be careful. Oh, about. okay, that's why. Yeah, I should, should be <laughs> we, we should that. be very clear about that, I, I and I should be more clear about. It. I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of both China and Taiwan because both of those yeah. emerging industries are doing some very interesting things. Uh, but out of China, you've had stuff like um, Banner of the Maid, which was a really nice little tactics RPG that uh, you was based on the Napoleonic era, which was really fun. Uh, they did the bright memory first person shooter that was a one person team out of shanghai created oh, a I really that. a really neat little first person shooter that even i enjoyed yeah, um pretty good and then of course genshin impact came out of nowhere <laughs> to become oh, the massive yeah, thing that true. it is that's huge so yeah the chinese industry is really interesting taiwanese industry has um sword and fairy and also uh shuan one sword that they both come from the same company actually um, soft soft star i want to say that's their name so they've also got <laughs> uh red lantern well they did oh, i don't candle. know if red, oh, I red candle i don't know if they're still they around so good they, they were uh, so good but they that's kind of the indie stuff that coming out of those countries which is really fascinating and like you say also there, there's some really interesting stuff coming out of, out of indonesia and uh, thailand and these countries will have uh, in, in quite interesting games industries, I think. India as well. A couple of games have come out of India in recent years, which have been fascinating. Um, and in their own way, each of these companies will be resistant to corporate takeover. 
Yes, yes. I, I mean, and amongst other things, most of them are too small to bother, which is the other good thing. <laughs> when you're only a team of 10 people, um, you don't add that much to the companies that have got like a million people worldwide. And unless you've got a lot of really strong IP, the likes of Embracer Group aren't that interested in you either. So being indie does insulate you from being acquired. I guess it's like an, a neutral change, right? It's neither a good or a bad thing. It's like a, this is what's going to happen kind of thing. I think, I mean, I think it's really bad what is happening at the top end of the games industry. And I've been quite vocal about that. I think the acquisitions are terrible. I think the consolidation in the industry is terrible. I think we're getting worse and worse ideas, quality ideas and games out of that space. But once you become comfortable with the fact that that change is happening and you start looking elsewhere for games, then there is a lot of good stuff happening and you just got to be open, I guess, to change that you don't need to be playing Assassin's Creed or AAA games anymore. You don't need to have those things. You can have a good time by loading up each each week and downloading a bunch of quirky stuff and playing those. So we thought we'd talk about handhelds this month in the podcast. And part of the reason for that is I picked up the Anbenic Win 600 because the Steam Deck's not available in Australia and won't be for a while. And the AA Neo is about two grand, which is which is expensive. Um, it looks good. It looks like a really nice piece of kit, but a little bit rich for me. So I picked up the Anbenic Win 600 for 500 bucks and I've really enjoyed it. I think it's a great little handheld console. And we thought we'd talk about that in the podcast this week. So I guess the big question here is, 
are we getting to the point where we don't need TV consoles? Are we going to be playing everything on our handhelds soon enough? So I mean, not just I TV consoles, say, also PCs, but um, yeah, we're going to be playing everything handheld soon. I want to say no to that just because no one is designing games for handhelds anymore. And it's getting really, really frustrating because with a console game, right, they can expect you to sit down and hold your attention for an hour or two hours and they'll use techniques like save points or they'll use techniques like um, long cutscenes or consistent immersive set pieces and none of that works on handheld because you're going to get distracted every five minutes like even if i'm sitting on my couch and playing a handheld i will get distracted way more easily so i hope they find a way to fix this that's interesting because most people would say they wanted their handhelds to be closer and closer to the tv console experience anyway i mean that was um i guess that was a big part of the appeal of the switch originally that it was by far and away the most powerful kind of handheld console that you could it then is. also hook up to your TV, but it, it gave you that kind of console quality game in your hands as such. It is, but it's a different relationship with the game. Maybe this is just me and my, my proclivities, but even something like Splatoon, which was designed around the Wii U being partially handheld, it's shorter, it's much punchier, like you you have much less commitment playing it compared to an uh, an arena shooter, right? We were sitting down for half an hour to do it. I don't know. It's just a different way of thinking for me. Well, yeah, I guess so. But I mean, at the same time, the the Switch launched with Breath of the Wild, which was certainly a game that you were designed to sit there and play for many hours at a time uh, and drain the battery in kind of one go. So... I I definitely thought with the Switch, Nintendo's goal was to to put that console experience in the hands for the first time, because before mm-hmm. that it was like the 3DS, right? So it was it was a very different kind of handheld experience. Yeah, yeah, you were definitely getting like a lesser experience for whatever you played. Well, even if you talk about just the Zelda games, like the 3DS, for example, it had uh, what did it have? It had the Link's Awakening Link between worlds. Yeah, Link's, no, Link's between worlds. Play. Yeah, Link's Awakening was on the Switch. Yes, and it also had the um the four it did drop the console the console Zelda games yeah the um yeah. the Ocarina of Time why did it take me so long to remember that Ocarina and Majora's Mask did release on the 3DS and it was a just a three uh, N64 game running on a handheld and that also did annoy me because I would stop mid dungeon and have no idea where I was or what I was doing. Yeah, they de- compared to like the other ones, they definitely felt like that you were like meant to sit down for a little bit longer and play those ones compared to the fr- other three DS games. Like there was a bit more of a jarring difference between the experiences. Uh, even if you look at the DS one, like uh, Spirit Tracks and you know Phantom Hourglass, like they were you know designed that you'd go back to a central location, you would do something, and then you would sort of like maybe save the game and come back to it later kind of thing um, yeah. you know and even breath of the wild is really bite-sized you know it's shrines and korok seeds and spend as much time as you want but if you spend 15 minutes you've, you've done something yeah because it's like okay well you're playing the game you could be like okay well 
I'm going to do free shrines or I'm going to do this, uh, you know, one of the animal, spirit animal things, or I'm going to go and explore this area. And even then you can just like collect a few things and say, okay, well, time's up. I've done this for like 15 minutes kind of thing. Let's go and do something else like, you know, mow the lawn or do the washing <laughs> or something like that. I, you know? I, I really, really, really don't think that that was the kind of the goal with the, the game though yeah it might have been split up that way but i definitely think that nintendo's intent with breath of the wild was that you would spend quite a longer time playing it uh in a session because a lot of the appeal of that game was really about immersion and it was about spending time kind of you know putting putting yourself in that world and i'm sure they planned around it though there's no way they didn't plan around having that because the the comparison I would have is something like Metal Gear Solid that that series where sometimes a cutscene will occur and it will be twenty minutes long and you've just got to sit through that. Yeah, well, I don't think that that series has ever been about cutscenes though. Um, it, it's it's always told its story in a more directly interactive way rather than a, a passive cinematic way, and I I, mm. I just I, I I just don't think even the the short amount of time that i've spent playing breath of the wild those sessions a couple of times i did play it they were fairly lengthy because the game just guides you into spending a lot of time sitting there playing it in one go so i definitely think that nintendo's goal with the switch was to to put that that console experience in the hands and they made it easy to play it in a pick up and go kind of way because you could suspend and restart without having to save and all those kinds of things so those features were there but that console was the first where the the equivalent experience to the tv console was there in your hands so i think that they did it and that was that was a good thing and now we've got the likes of the steam deck and stuff putting the the triple a gamers such in the hands as well uh, i know the steam deck can play pretty much anything pretty comfortably if you were to put your cyberpunk or gta or whatever on there it'll handle it i believe pretty well uh the win i'd say it's more of a quality of life uh, features which are coming out which are sort of helping you know condense the experience and also if you want to sit down and experience that like you know going back to the switch like you know you can easily have that you know five minute you know session of breath of the wild or you could be like i'm gonna be immersed into the game like the game is designed to suck you in uh and you can put it on the tv and you can play it for a bit or you can have it portable and maybe you know be sitting in the back of the car kind of thing i don't know like you, you can have either world with just all the new quality of life features and you've got stuff like the nes games they've got like save states and you can roll back um you know, like if you die, like constant, constantly, and you're like you're a six year old kid, you can be like, oh, I can just press this button and roll back in like five seconds, and then nice. I get like three hearts again, and then you stab the guy, and then you die again, and then you just roll back five seconds. I think those quality of life things that you're talking about, they're all part of the intent of the the way that the likes of Steam are handling their entry into the console as well. Like for example. The, the cloud save system works really well with Steam. Um, I I downloaded, for example, Persona 4 Golden onto the Win uh, 600. And when I loaded it up, the save was right there, ready to go. And I played it a bit. 
and then loaded up on my PC and the, the save was there and it was all seamless. I didn't need to do anything myself. It just That's automatically backs up. Yeah. It just automatically backs up to the cloud. It's all just, it's all just really seamless the way that these, these devices are, are kind of being made to interact with it, it's, it's about your game is kind of this, this concept. It doesn't really exist on any device. It's whatever you're playing it on. Um, you can kind of seamlessly pick it up and, and continue on with it, which I think is really neat. And I think that's the way it needs to be if these things are going to work. That yeah. it's not so much about the platform you play the game on now. It's more just about having access to that game. And I think that's Pe- a really... People these days won't know the struggle of memory costs. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's a, it's a, I think it's a, it's a good addition to have as well that you can pick your game up and play it kind of on the go anywhere and kind of have that if you if you're really into a game then you don't need to wait until you get home to play it some more if that makes sense hmm. um like, if you've got do you feel you've got, that changes the experience no i don't anything think significantly so. different about it no i don't think so um the the good thing about these devices is the screen quality is there so that uh, when I first started to play these games, for example, I thought that um, the text size might be a bit of a problem as it happens quite often with the, with the, yeah, switch, with the switch ports. Oh, it's such a problem. Yeah. That so much. The developers haven't really thought about the, the, the move to the smaller screen and the text becomes very unreadable as a result. Uh, all the games I've played so far on this thing have not had that problem because I think the screen quality is quite high and it's it's just quite easy to read. I haven't come across that yet. I'm sure there will probably be incident, incident, incidences where it won't work, but um, for now it's okay. Other than that, I I, I don't think I, I think the experience is enhanced by having access to these games on the go. I don't think it's kind of taken away. And now that you've got the ability to connect to the internet pretty much much anywhere via hotspots and 4G and 5G, um. There, I, I, if if you're playing online games, then you don't really need to worry about that. So I think all of this is it's and it's happening quickly. I think is the the thing. It's yeah, started, it's kind of like an arms race, really. The, the yeah. moment that uh, Steam Deck started talking about going handheld, everybody was getting in on that. Well, that was the thing. I mean, before Steam Deck, there were options to have Windows on a portable console, but they were pretty clunky and really really expensive and i don't think anybody really thought about the user experience of them but steam comes along with their one and shows how it should be done i guess and then everybody started to rush to bring them out like this this ambonic one is the first time ambonic's done a windows thing before that that would have been linux based kind of or, or android um emulation consoles this is the first time they've done something that you can have windows on and that is that's always been important that you've had kind of one pioneering company that forces everybody else to to suddenly pay attention on how to do it right. Yeah, and I hate that it's Steam. Yeah, it is kind of annoying that it is Steam, but <laughs> Steam has been the right platform for it because they do have that really good online infrastructure already. And yeah, it's Steam... also good that they can just go, by the way, all the games you already have, you can play them now. Yeah, exactly. And like I said, the the save the cloud saves and stuff make it so seamless to just pick up and play
play your games exactly where you were. You don't need to restart them. You can just continue to to play them as they are. So that's a good thing. I guess the uh, the one thing I would have liked is I, I, the the one thing I think Steam needs to investigate. I guess is some is to make it somehow possible to stream these games, not just download them. Um, Do you mean like? stream via your internet to play when it's running on your computer or like stream as in to a stream like a twitch surface well no i mean yeah play them uh like you would play game pass for example uh and that's another thing that i have been messing around with with the ambernick is i signed up for the microsoft game pass thing and um in that you get cloud gaming so rather than have to download the game you can stream it directly to your device and it works really, really well. Uh, I have my issues with subscription services, but that's the monetization of them. What I really do like is the technology behind the streaming because the Ambernix a pretty underpowered device. It can't do AAA gaming, but when you're streaming them, all of a sudden you have access to literally anything. And I've played the Mass Effects and Dragon Ages right through to Skyrim and a whole bunch of other games that the Ambernix would not be able to handle um, using its internal system, when it's just streamed, it's uh, it it's quite capable of it. So that is that is, I guess, the next step. And I would like to see Steam find some way to make your library streamable, so not just downloadable. If that makes sense. I remember you being a big fan of um, cloud gaming, just even when it was a really new concept, like ten years ago when they first teased the possibility of it. You were like, "Yeah, this is going to be the future." Yeah, I really do think that that is an, an excellent thing. Um, obviously, you've got to have an internet connection to be able to play your games if you're going to stream them. But like I said, with 5G in particular, it can definitely handle game streaming. It's faster than most mm. um, most kind of wired connections. So as but that continues... That they're as not that really investing in it. Most well, companies, I mean. Well, 5G is still rolling out and it's not going to happen overnight. But... Uh, as it continues to grow, as, as it continues to permeate and then, you know, replaces 4G in more places, then the convenience of that is going to be, it, it means that things like streaming services can be done anywhere and people will have a reliable expectation that they'll be able to do them anywhere. So mm. then I guess the question is just whether the economics are there that Steam or whoever, Valve, could could take the library of games and make them streamable. I would like to think they can. I mean, the the Apple TV already does that with movies. So I've got 400 movies or whatever on my Apple, and you don't have to download them to play them on your Apple TV. TV, You buy them, and then you can just stream them whenever you want to watch them. So I think it can be done. I think a, a lot of the games industry is kind of committed to forcing subscriptions on people, <laughs> and that's um that's a problem. But that's a separate issue to the stream in itself. And I think in the games industry, that's being conflated a bit that streaming comes with subscriptions, but I don't think that needs to be the case. And I would like to see you have the ability to buy the game and then stream it rather than have to download it and play it. When that happens, then kind of the sky's the limit. You'll be able to play AAA games or, you know, high, very high quality games that you've bought on anything from the cheapest of Androids through to these kind of handheld consoles right up to your PC and just do that seamlessly. So I think that's where things would be, would ideally go. And at that point, um, 
Well, I guess that's the kind of awesome. push with the <laughs> Xbox uh, ecosystem at the moment. Like, yeah, you know, because yeah, the have original X. Yeah, the original Xbox One, I think, you know, Microsoft was definitely way too early for their concept. Uh, and they might have had some, you know, some of their ideas were a little bit uh, not thought out. But, you know, definitely the original Xbox One concept was is definitely where we are, you know, now. Like, it's crazy to think that a lot of the stuff the Xbox One was, you know, going to do, you know, that's now considered standard for, you know, both Sony and Microsoft. And then you've got this huge push right now to, you know, uh, the Xbox is essentially going to be not an Xbox. Like you can get it in Samsung TVs and have access to the cloud st- uh, streaming stuff. Uh, like it's interesting to see that, you know, they're moving away from you having a physical hardware. You buy, you know, your TV or whatever, and you can stream whatever games you've purchased or whatever you've got in Game Pass. Like that is the push. Uh, I don't think Sony's really pushing as hard at the moment. Like they've got stuff in some regions, but it doesn't seem as, you know, really there yet. It's, it seems more like a beta product, like Sony's uh, ideas. Like they've only just really changed their subscription setup, for example, as well to match what Microsoft's doing with Game Pass. That's that's kind of that that's kind of my problem with Microsoft is that they have attached their their concept to the stream as well. As uh, sorry to to the subscriptions as well. Like that cloud gaming thing, which I really love. Um, you can only access that via Game Pass. So if I didn't want to use Game Pass and I wanted to <laughs> buy Dragon Age and play it and stream it. I couldn't do that. I could stream it if I was a subscriber. I can't stream it if I'm not. So that annoys me um, because that is definitely, uh, if this is the vision that Microsoft has for the future, which I think is a good vision and will be great for everybody, because like I said, it'll mean you'll be able to play your Dragon Ages or your Forzas or your Gears of War or your Halos on the cheapest Androids out there. You you spend a hundred bucks and you've got a console on the go. But if they're going to then attach that, that you have to be a subscriber to game pass to get that functionality, then I have a big issue with it. And I would like to see the industry split the two that you can stream without, you, you can own or buy and then stream, or you can be a subscriber if you want to, to the, the, the system. That's the only way it's going to really work for me. Um, Matt, it's time to admit you don't own games anymore. Like you know, it's not about game... it's not it's not about ownership. It's about the fact that these games drop off those services, and at that point they're lost. Well, uh, well you have uh, Project like... Cars, for example, just dropped off. Uh, their games are going to be taken off stores soon because they're lost. Because the, of uh, licensing, and that licensing. is yeah, yeah, and that is that is really I, I'm not I'm not happy about that. And if you think about that, kind of exploded to a a massively bigger scale of games being kind of made accessible and inaccessible based on commercial dealings, then subscriptions are going into a very, very nasty place. Like if, when I look, when I load up the, the cloud gaming thing at the moment, there's like a dozen games that are leaving game pass soon. And that doesn't work for me. <laughs> that's, that's, that's my issue with it. It's not, it's not about ownership. I've never, cared that much about ownership of stuff i was an early adopter of digital games when everybody was like why would you download them you've got to buy them on <laughs> you physical named and your stuff. website after them <laughs> yeah exactly uh, i've never been i've never 
cared that much about the ownership because I think it's always just a kind of an illusion anyway, because physical media dies as well. And um, I think on, on a whole, having digital access to stuff is, is better, but the key there is the access word <laughs> and subscriptions change the access because they take the control of access well and truly away from the consumer and put it purely on the whims of the, co the, the corporate, which I don't like. Um, for another example, at the moment, if you're a subscriber to Game Pass, you do get access to a whole bunch of EA stuff because they've got that relationship going. But then there was the rumors that... Uh, oh, you just know they're going to do that. You well, just know they're the, going to make there were the rumors. There were the rumors that Amazon's going to go and buy EA. Now, those rumors haven't played out for now. But if that does happen, then access to all that EA stuff on Game Pass will probably just disappear. And again, that is a problem. If you... Okay, the games industry can only be an art form if the there is some kind of effort to make this stuff accessible and preserve it for, for, for future generations. And people should not have to rely on the whims of these companies with these subscription services to be able to play these games. So, yeah, I have no problem with streaming. I think streaming is excellent. I just don't like the way it's delivered to us. Yeah, well, if I guess with uh, everything becoming games as a service, we're kind of sort of also heading in, you know, to the point where if you want, like, your, you know, Fortnite or your, you know, the latest Splatoon or something like that, you would probably get this in a streaming service and it would just be a generic title. It doesn't need to be, you know, uh, you know, Call of Duty 4 or something like that. It's just Call of Duty and you're signing into Call of Duty and you have whatever the current licensing has for maps and levels and whatever. And that's the experience you have because, and you just have whatever you can get. Like Forza, for example, might be like that. Like you just be like, okay, well, I, whatever the current Forza is, I have all the music licenses, I have all the locations, but in like a year or two, Forza might be in this location and I don't have access to this anymore. Like that seems to be where we're heading in terms of, you know, stuff moving more towards streaming and also games of the service at the same time. And that's a great and a terrible thing because it's it's weird that we've reached this point going back to even handhelds we're moving towards a world where if we want to play games we can play it anything anywhere all the time right mm -hmm. regardless of where we are we have the access to play them but if we want to play a specific game we're going to get increasingly more difficult processes to try and achieve that which is, is really bizarre to me yeah yeah absolutely and um we're going to have to subscribe to more of these bloody subscription services to access them as well. At some points, at some point, we so need to watch gonna... um, Netflix very carefully because Netflix had this golden era of, we have just about everything. So if you want to watch any movie, you come to us. And now because of all the new services, it's become a case of you can watch a film or you can watch a TV show on Netflix. But if you want to find uh, one thing that you really want to watch, you need to first download an app that will tell you what service it's going to be on for what window, and you need to specifically subscribe to that service. It's just this become this huge nightmare. Yeah, and it's it's the cost of it all as well that really bothers me. Like when it was just Netflix, then great. Um, you'd pay uh, 15, 20 bucks a month or whatever it was, and you would have access to all this stuff, and that was it. But uh, now you need to have access to, if you want to watch Game of Thrones or the new game, whatever the new Game of Thrones is called, 
if you want to watch that, you've got to have access to binge in Australia. If you want to watch uh, Lord of the Rings, you're going to have to have access to the uh, Amazon Prime. If you want to watch uh, another show, you'll need to have Stan. And uh, then you also need to have Netflix for the stuff that Netflix has. Yeah, and all all of a sudden, yeah, and then you've got to have Disney for the Marvel stuff, and then all of a sudden, you're now paying a hundred over a hundred dollars a month just to have access. And when you want to watch something, you'll be able to. So, people are either going to have to keep, keep subscribing and unsubscribing to stuff when they want to watch something, which kind of removes the ability to just watch it at a whim, or they're going to have to maintain a whole bunch of subscriptions for stuff they're not using when something isn't interesting to them, just so that if down the track they want to rewatch something, then they can. That's coming to the game space as well. I mean, already we've got Games Pass, and at the moment they're pre- they're basically the the only one, and people aren't too unhappy about paying the 15 bucks a month, whatever it is for the Game Pass. But Sony's got one coming for sure, um, and then you'll be able to play your Sony games on these devices, but that'll be another... 30 you know that'll be another 15 dollar subscription and then amazon will buy its way into ea or whatever and then you'll have an amazon one and then google will have one and then apple will do something to expand the arcade out in a way that you have to have that subscription and all of a sudden you'll be spending 100 bucks a month in subscription services uh, just to be able to play the game you want to when you want to so on in theory all this stuff is meant to be about convenience and um value for money and whatever and individually it would be except for the fact that all these companies are kind of cutting you off uh, they've got all this exclusive content and if you're not going to buy into every single one of them then you're going to miss out on stuff and i can't stand that i absolutely hate that it's suggesting that there's a bigger push for piracy again like you know oh, absolutely sort of settled down for like a long time when these streaming services were in their you know infancy that you know streaming is the future streaming is gonna be great you know maybe you had one or two streaming services but you didn't have like five six you know eight under the belt and then all of a sudden because everyone everything's so spread thin it's you know I, I see a lot of stuff more in my feed and stuff like that of people saying, well, you know, retweeting stuff like, you know, well, we're going to pirate this because, you know, it's just inconvenient to do X, Y, and Z or comics, which are like, you know, about piracy and stuff all of a sudden, like it's just seems to be back in the front again because of how these services are designed. And that was absolutely the thing like when Netflix was new and Netflix was 90% of the stuff was there and you, you only needed one subscription people did stop pirating and that was that was a good thing um certainly don't condone pirating when there there is an alternative but people feel like there's no alternative again if they want to watch something they don't have unlimited money the economy's fucked in the you know everybody's trying to to just buy bloody lettuces and eggs at the moment so they don't have massive amounts of money to keep throwing around behind all of these services just to to watch what they want to so yeah they are turning back to piracy they should turn back to piracy because to be honest the these companies don't deserve the support of people's money it's it's and And there's also just the smaller problem as well that it's changing the way we engage with media because with this kind of design if your use of video games is basically as a sedative to make your time pass then 
that's what all these services are trying to do, right? Is that they just want something to capture your time and attention so that you don't go to somebody else. And it's going to change the way they design games is that they're going to make you want to play longer rather than have any kind of meaningful finite experience. Yeah, that that is an issue with uh, subscription services as well, because uh, also from the development side of things, the, the only way they get kind of monetized as such is by having people play for quite long periods of time. Um, I think pretty much every single existing um, subscription service pays out based on the amount of time people spend playing that game. So developers are really incentivized to make games that just don't stop and you end up playing them for 400, 500, 600 hours. Because if you make a game that tells a really good story, like South of the... Um, South of the circle. South of the circle. I can never remember. I keep thinking south of the equator. It's not. If if you <laughs> I mean technically it is. If if you go and make a game like South of the Circle, which is a couple of hours long, tells a really good story, you don't get paid for that because you just do not get enough money out of each individual person. They play it once and they kind of don't again. So those developers are in big trouble with all of this stuff. Um the the other thing is that as subscription services become more standardized, people stop buying games up front. I've seen the numbers for Xbox, for example, and it has fundamentally dropped off completely how, how many people are willing to buy games up front uh, because they just subscribe to the, the Game Pass and that's it. So those developers that are trying to create these kind of short or narrative intense experiences, they are in a lot of trouble. Uh, the the market for them is is disappearing very quickly, unfortunately.